bit of a, a break. break. Just a one week break. <laughs> I was being a world traveler. You were. You went to the other side of the country, I totally know. abandoned me here on the East Coast. Yeah. Um, and came back to horrible weather. Uh, <laughs> it was it was not great weather there. It was cold really? all week. And I we took like That's... tank tops and shorts. Yeah. And then had to like buy hoodies at one of those like Hollywood souvenir shops. That's so upsetting. It was great though. Dr. Alicia was like sending me messages. She was like, I'm like 30 minutes from Anaheim and you're in Anaheim and I was like oh my gosh we're in the same place this is fabulous that's so exciting yeah and then she, <laughs> she suggested another person for us to do who's like from that area oh, and she was like add it into the bank or something <laughs> it's like we might have to bump somebody now we might we just might thought we bump somebody. we probably do that once or twice a season oh yeah definitely do a big bumperoo <laughs> Um, yeah, but we're back. Thanks for listening. We had two awesome off- author interviews last week, so that mm-hmm. was a treat. Mm-hmm. We're always talking to people. Yes. Always talking to people. Uh, but here, tonight, today, whatever time it is, we're going to talk to you about her story. On the rocks! With Katie. And Allie. This is a podcast where we talk about famous women in history. We talk about good women and bad women and fictional women and non-fictional women from all times and places because women have nuance but keep in mind we are drinking the entire time and we're not historians (laughs) we are just basic little ladies that like women's history yep exactly so sue us and (laughs) tell us what facts we got wrong because i feel like you can't can't sue us we're not like libeling anybody that's true (laughs) not libeling (laughs) before we get in to the ladies we're going to talk about today we need to get a little physical physical god we are rusty i also forgot that we usually do like a little intro yeah to yeah, it. yeah yeah that's okay you're doing something but that's fine we're you're doing gonna something get right you're busy it. we're busy we're just doing it all busy Allie, who are you doing and what does she look like i am doing rosalind franklin this week she is a british jewish woman with hair that's chopped very short but kept a little longer in the front to give the look of like a wavy bang uh-huh. she had um kind of a button nose like a round nose like i have on the end uh and a, kind of a round face. She didn't do a lot with her hair or makeup because she was really into her work. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think she was very cute, just didn't really fit the mold of what a yeah. woman was supposed to look like at the time. <laughs> um, so definitely her male coworkers were like, she doesn't take care of herself. Yeah. <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> Who are you doing? What does she look like? So I am doing Krista from Fern Gully. Our second fairy of the season. <laughs> Second fairy. Uh, she is a fairy who has transparent wings, very similar to Tinkerbell's. She has big green eyes, large pointed ears, and a wide smile punctuated by bright red lipstick. She has shaggy black hair, and she wears a red two-piece number consisting of a kind of one-shoulder crop top and a tattered skirt. And I've always thought that she looks like 90s actress Ferruja Bulk. Do you agree with that? No. Who is Ferruja Balk? So Ferruja Balk is famous for, she was in Waterboy. She was oh, in that witch's yep, movie. That's exactly right. You know exactly yes, who I'm talking that's about. That's correct. I feel like, I always felt like she looked like Ferruja Balk. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. With like less eye makeup. Yeah, yes. sure, sure, sure. <laughs> that's fun. Yeah. Yeah, this is going to be an interesting comparison. I don't know what's going on here. I don't know either because my story is weird. Okay. That's <laughs> fine. That's good. Uh, but do you want to know what you're about to drink? I really do. It looks exciting. <laughs> so this is called Above the Canopy. Uh, and so this is fig jam. Okay. And sage leaves. Right. Bourbon, lemon juice, and orange liqueur. Got it. You shake it all up and strain it into a glass and like garnish it with a fig in 
sage leaves. Cheers. It's delicious. I'm trying to taste it because my nose is all stuck up. <laughs> Can you tell that Katie has a little cold? I'm very ill. Um, but... <laughs> Thank you for doing this with us. You have your, like, Phoebe uh, sexy voice. <laughs> but yeah, it does. I re- actually really like it. It is this. really, it's really good. nice. The um, jam is a nice touch. The mm-hmm. sage is a nice touch. And the, um, the little garnish kind of looks like a snitch. Oh, it does. It is. <laughs> yeah. Like a little natural little nature-based golden snitch Um, fun (laughs) but yeah i wanted to choose a fig because in the movie um they're always picking these little seeds out of these fruits and it kind of looks either like a passion fruit or Mm -hmm. a fig yeah um and so i looked it up if figs grow in australia and they do oh great yeah so anyways what do you know about krista from fern gully so krista is a fairy and her kingdom is dealing with the deforestation issue and with air pollution issues, I think, uh, Zach is a human who has a yellow Walkman like I had. <laughs> and um, he is kind of transported into this kingdom and learns that the humans are destroying the environment. It was a very environment forward. Oh, yes, it was. <laughs> yeah, Tim, Tim Curry plays the petroleum, which yeah. I love. <laughs> um, and her grandma mother or mentor of some kind is like a very powerful regrower mm-hmm. and uh krista is trying to learn those skills she doesn't yes. have the growing skills so that's what i yeah. think there was a sequel yeah that i did not <laughs> we'll watch talk about it. <laughs> um nor should you <laughs> <laughs> good yeah so that is what i know about krista from fern gully yeah that's pretty much it um yeah i I watched this movie a lot when I was a kid. Uh, we had it on VHS. I believe uh, <laughs> my friend Connie brought it over and I just never gave it back. Um, and apparently that's like how a lot of kids, like not a lot of people saw it in the movie theater, um, but it was very big on VHS. Yeah, it was one of those non-Disney releases. <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. Um, but yeah, and like a lot of, like you said, environmental themes. Um, so obviously this is kind of a funny story to do because Chris is not, like um her story doesn't come from like a fairy tale it doesn't come from like an old tradition like this is a very new story right so i'm gonna kind of go through the plot and then go through a little bit of her character and gonna get into the production of the movie because i think that that says a lot about i don't know the climate at the time and you know a lot of stuff like that the awareness of like (laughs) (laughs) environmental issues yes Okay, so, because this movie, as I said, is a little bit more of a cult classic, I'm going to start with the plot, (laughs) in case you haven't seen it. (laughs) Krista is a fairy of curious nature who lives in Fern Gully. This is a picturesque rainforest which is free from human pollution. The fairies of Fern Gully once lived in harmony with humans, but the fairies believe that they have gone extinct after being driven away by a dark spirit named Hexus. So Hexus is basically an allegory for pollution. Like he literally is like a smoke monster that feeds off of oil. Um, One of the grossest parts of the movie that I totally forgot about is when he's like seeping into the leveler and he goes, "Mm, mother's milk. Can you picture Tim Curry saying that into a microphone recording? I can. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) 
Um, and I totally forgot that about the movie that the fairies think the humans went extinct. And it's kind of portrayed as Hexus killing them, like basically like pollution killed these people. But mm-hmm. when I was watching it as an adult, I kind of got the feeling that like Hexus is obviously pollution, but he's kind of like made by humans, mm-hmm. you know. And I was like, it kind of feels like when the Industrial Revolution brought, you know, deforestation into these areas, like the humans that would have been interacting with the fairies in these Aboriginal rainforests are the native people of Australia. Mm. So I kind of took it as like they think they went extinct because they got pushed out of the forest. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I didn't really like think about it until this watch through. Um, cause I was like, who else would have been living in the rainforest? Right. So the people that they coexisted with went yes. extinct, not the colonizers. Yes, exactly. Cool. Yeah. Um, so anyways, Krista is the apprentice of Maggi, an old fairy who imprisoned Hexus in a tree years ago. One day, Krista explores a new part of the forest and meets Batty Coda. I'm bat. Batty! <laughs> who, a bat who raps um, and has been experimented on by humans. He's a lab bat, baby! He is. Uh, he has a manic and deluded personality, according to Wikipedia. Um, and he basically tells the fairies all about what the humans did to him. I mean, he's literally, like, he has, like, a wire in his head. He talks about getting tested for makeup and, like, all this other stuff. Oh, my gosh. So, just like a little plug for like you know animal research animal research (laughs) in Um, the movie and encore to robin williams of course of course um but the fairies refuse to believe him they're like that's impossible humans are extinct (laughs) but krista is very interested in this and she goes you know what i'm gonna volunteer I'm going to be the next Maggie, so I better investigate the situation. (laughs) So she flies above and out of the protective canopy of Fern Gully, a classic don't leave the home situation. Don't go above the water. Don't go above the surface. Don't go into the elephant graveyard. Exactly. Just just stay stay put. Exactly. Um, And she sees that there is like all this smoke that's coming from a logging company tearing down the forest. So she's investigating, and here she sees Zach. He's a young, hot lumberjack who Krista accidentally shrinks when she tries to save him from a falling tree. Uh, But then she doesn't know quite how to restore him to normal size. (laughs) Zach initially believes Krista to be hostile, and he actually thinks that she's mugging him because she takes his knife and wallet out of his pocket, which is very funny. Um, But then uh, she gains his trust when she saves him from a hungry goana. This is a type of lizard. This is the one that has that very random song. Yes. Um, <laughs> I will say, some people, I, I don't care for the music in this movie. Some of it's okay, but it's all very abrupt. Um, <laughs> it does not blend in with the storyline and or no. move the story forward in any way. No. Like, why did we give two minutes of screen time to a lizard song that we never see that lizard again? Never. <laughs> he was just trying to eat Zach. Exactly. This is no ka. This is no. not a ka situation. Literally, he's like no part of this. Um, <laughs> but anyways, but this makes Zach trust Krista, so I guess it does have some part of the story. Uh, Zach and Krista become close while she teaches him about the rainforest, um, and they even kiss at some point in a very Cute. dramatic sequence. Um, but it is cool because while they're going through, 
like a lot of movies that focus on like things like this, like I think about like Pocahontas, like it's a lot about like the animals that live there. And like this does focus on that, but they get into like the really cool aspects of like living in a rainforest. Mm. And like like one of the most iconic scenes is they're in like a bioluminescent bay, which is a real thing that like exists in the rainforest of Australia, <laughs> which is very cool. Um, so anyways. They're teaching each other, and this makes Krista's friend Pips very jealous. Pips and Krista are old friends, but it's clear that he wants to be more than that, and he does not like Zach intruding on his girl. It's a very Cocoam thing. I, yep, we talk about that later. Okay. <laughs> I literally <laughs> mentioned Cocoa. <laughs> um, so, yeah, and then, like, and because Zach doesn't quite get the whole nature thing. Like, he's trying to, like, carve her name into a tree because he's like, this is cute. This is what I do for girls that I like. And she's like, you're hurting the tree. <laughs> um, he's like, okay, you hippie. Yeah, <laughs> fine. So while this is going on, the tree that Haxus is imprisoned in is cut down by Zach's supervisors because earlier in the film, Zach accidentally marks it for destruction. Mm-hmm. Um, so his supervisors tony and ralph cut the tree down send it through the leveler and hexus quickly begins to regain his powers by feeding on the pollution that the leveler is creating he manipulates tony and ralph to drive to fern gully to tear it down which i love that like this is not just what the fairies call it it's just like what it's known as in the world like he's like go to fern gully and they're like said to go to fern gully okay like, <laughs> the gully know of where ferns. this is the gully like... of ferns man <laughs> Um, but when the signs of Hexus's resurrection and the upcoming leveler begin to manifest themselves in Fern Gully, like poison trees, and there's oil in the river, Zack finally admits to all the fairies that, yes, the humans are here and they are destroying the forest. Krista's really mad because she's like, you told me you had nothing to do with this, and it's very dramatic. So the fairies mount an attempt to defend their homes, uh, but they... Zach is like they are no match for the leveler like yeah. this huge fucking machine so Zach convinces Batty to aid him in stopping the machine before it destroys them so you know he breaks into the machine and thankfully turns the machine off right before it's about to get to Ferngully so all that's going on <laughs> Um, but there's still, I mean, Hexus is still feeding off of like the residual oil and it becomes like kind of like a slime monster. Um, and he's still coming for them. So Madge sacrifices herself to give the fairies a chance. And she tells Krista to remember everything that she's learned. So Maggie dies. And now Krista is like, oh my gosh, I'm the one in charge. <laughs> and then she sacrifices herself by basically taking a seed straight into Hexus. And everything seems to be at a loss until Hexus begins to sprout limbs and leaves like a tree. So he's starting to kind of grow a tree outside of him, and we're understanding this is probably what Maggie did all those years ago, and she trapped him in that other tree. Mm -hmm. So she's doing it, and she's like, I'm not, I can't do this alone. So Pips and the rest of the fairies rally together and use the powers that they have, they have, um, you know, cause like they're not as strong as Krista, but they all still do have a little bit of growing power. Of course. Um, so they kind of fly around Hexus and, uh, Hexus and the machine are both simultaneously imprisoned by the newly grown tree at the border of Ferngully. 
and then everything goes into bloom. Krista appears after the fight, having survived. She, like, comes out of a flower, and she officially now succeeds Maggie as the magical old lady fairy. <laughs> but she's still young and hot. Krista gives Zach a seat, begging him to remember everything that has transpired because they know that they can't st- he can't stay like this. So she returns him to his human size. And, you know, he's like, I don't want to go, but I know that, like, I have work to do outside of this. Um, so he buries the seed in the soil and then goes off with Tony and Ralph and says, we need to change things around here. <laughs> um, and they leave the forest behind, hopefully to stop climate change. The seed sprouts new growth for Fern Gully as Krista playfully chases Pip. Psst, I hate those names. Pips, <laughs> not Pip. Uh, with Batty following. <laughs> uh, and yeah, that is the whole story of Fern Gully. Yeah. <laughs> that's nice. <laughs> that's A to Z. You got it. All right. I literally just copy and pasted the plot from Wikipedia and then added a couple things. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a very cute movie. Mm-hmm. I would say it was it was definitely ahead of its time, I think, for like it was on the early end of like, hey guys, yeah. We're really like cutting down all of the rainforests. Yeah. We need to do something about this. <laughs> so Obviously, the movie has some pretty strong environmental themes, and Krista is at the forefront of those. It's funny, because when I first started doing my research and watching the movie again, I thought she was an aerial archetype, like, Mm. you know, especially with the don't go above the canopy thing. But then when I thought about it more, I was like, oh, she's much more of a Disney's Pocahontas, because Ariel is always trying to get away from her home, whereas Crystal and Krista and Pocahontas are really trying to save their home. Like, Mm -hmm. they want their independence, but they don't want to leave their home. They just kind of want to make it better. Right. They're like proud of where they're from and want to be, want it to stay safe. Yeah, exactly. Um, They also have pretty similar romantic lives. Uh, There's a pretty clear correlation between Pips and Kokoam. (laughs) These are the hometown guys who kind of feel like they are the natural fit for our protagonist ladies. And they are really pissed when an outsider comes and tries to woo them. Now, I like Pips a lot more than Coco. I mean, he has much more of a personality. Yeah, they, they give Coco, like, no personality. Literally none. I guess because, like, we could not like him. He just, like, scowls. Yeah. Because, like, frankly, when I was watching the movie, I was like, why doesn't she get with Pips? He's, like, super cute. Mm. <laughs> He's played by Christian Slater. Yeah. Um. So, anyways. And they also do something interesting where, like, Ariel is going to Eric, and, like, these girls are bringing their romantic interests, like, into their home life, mm-hmm. which I also really like. And they try to teach them about their demon white person ways. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the biggest, um, you know, ways that they're similar is that neither Pocahontas or Krista end up with their guy. Yeah. You know? I mean, Zach and John Smith are sent home on the pretense that they are going to make the world a better place, almost as, like, a message of, there are more important things than romantic relationships, like ending colonization and climate change. <laughs> mine, <laughs> mine, mine, every mountain. And I just, and it's interesting is this came before Pocahontas. Yeah. So I do wonder if it was like right in between Little Mermaid and Pocahontas. Interesting. What year yeah. did you say it came out? 1992. Okay. I didn't say what year. Oh, okay, <laughs> so I, yeah. I, I didn't write it down. And I was like, I have to add that in somewhere. This released in 1992. <laughs> okay. So Ariel's 1989. When is Pocahontas? I think 1995. 
95? Yeah, that, that sounds about right. Yeah, I want to say 95. Yeah, because Beauty and the Beast came out, I think, in like 91, maybe? You know? That makes sense because I think they were working on Beauty and the Beast while, like, um, or no, they had just done it. Was Beauty and the Beast 90? I think it was 91. Yeah, I think it was. Okay. It sounds right to me. Because okay. then they popped out Lion King real quick after that. Yes. Then Pocahontas. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> I think. <laughs> Who knows? Um, but yeah, but I, I like this idea, though, that they don't end up with the guy. Mm-hmm. I think it's a, a, a pretty powerful message that, like, it doesn't always work out that way, you know? Well, and also you're portraying, like, a, a teenage girl, young 20s girl. You're not always going to be with the guy that you were with or the fling you had yeah. when you're 19. Yeah. That's absurd. <laughs> right. Like, it's okay for things to come and go. Yeah. And to come and go without like, drama. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. just like, this boy was in my life. He was here. He's not the one. Love it. As far as her personality goes, Krista likes to have fun and daydream. But I would also say that she has a really big sense of responsibility. And we can see from her relationship with Maggie that she has a really big, like, a lot of respect for her elders. She wants to learn. She wants to get better. But she's still young and a little immature. It's like she's there for lessons and she keeps looking out (laughs) to the rainforest. I think Um, she's also pretty, like, um self-conscious or like lack self-confidence in like obviously Mm -hmm. she is training for this position for a reason that was one of the things i was like why don't we know why it's krista yeah (laughs) i always assumed it was familial but i don't know that it doesn't seem like it when you rewatch no because like maggie is kind of a grandparent figure but we don't hear of any official relationship between yeah. Um, which I thought was, like, kind of funny. I don't know. It's um, a very matriarchal mm-hmm. culture. It almost, like, it seems matriarchal in power structure. Yes. And I did um, hear on one of the things I was listening to that um, a lot of, like, Aboriginal cultures are matriarchal. Right. So it probably reflected, like, the culture that this is based mm-hmm. on. Um because Krista does have a father, which is really funny because I only realized that, like, this little guy who kind of looks like Maurice from... I was going to say he looks like the Sultan from yep. d- from Aladdin. Uh, <laughs> I only realized it was her dad because, like, halfway through the movie, she's like, Father! And I was like, that guy's been around the whole time. You're just now addressing him as dad? Like, but And I think that maybe this is where the movie could have been a little bit stronger. I wish that she had more relationships with her community. Right. She only talks to a handful of people and it doesn't really explain why, again, like I said, she's the next Maggie. Um, I don't know. It just kind of feels like she is a little separated from the community. Like Pips is way more involved with like everybody going on. <laughs> you know, what's funny. I, this is something producer and I have talked about before. Like when you're watching like a Disney or a Pixar movie versus watching like a Warner brothers or DreamWorks or whatever, it's just those animation films just lack that something. Yes. I can't tell what it is, but there's just something that like, Mm -hmm. it doesn't hit the nail on the head. Yeah. I think it's because like Disney and Pixar, they, they go a little bit more into the why. Yeah. Why is this person doing this? What is their uh, motivation? Because, like, who who do they belong to? Right. You know, because it kind of feels like, yeah, Chris is a fairy. 
of course right. she's going to be doing this. And it's like, well, yeah, but, but like, why is she doing it? Ariel's a mermaid and she doesn't really feel super connected, but we know why. Like, you know, it's just, I don't know. I just, yeah, I feel like the movie is very abrupt and it doesn't explain a whole lot. Right. <laughs> but you can tell like they had a, they had a motive. Like oh, yeah. their motive is absolutely to teach children about climate change yep. and deforestation. Um, and they were doing it through cartoons, which is a really smart way to do it because as soon as you get kids watching it, then the parents are seeing it in the background. Yep. Exactly. That's what Sesame Street does all the time. Yep. <laughs> um, but yeah, so Chris is learning. She's the next Maggie. And I also like that, like, you know, she's learning, but she's also teaching Zach, you know, like she's, so we do see how much she does know. Mm-hmm. Like she isn't just like a stupid kid who doesn't know anything. Like she's also teaching him, um, even though she still has a lot to learn, which I do like that that's like another message of the movie. Um, Cause like, it's kind of clear from the beginning that Chris is not ready to be the head magical mama around Fern Gully. <laughs> but when the time comes, cause I feel like with a lot of these things, like you're never, you never think you're ready. But then sometimes, like, you have to step up. And as her hero, Wiki, states, she never loses her former personality, but she is easily able to step up and act like a proper leader when she has to. Which I kind of like that she doesn't change totally as a person. She just kind of comes into, I don't know who she always has been. And I like that journey for her. (laughs) She definitely rises to the challenge. Yeah. Um, So, some more facts about this movie um as i've said throughout this whole thing this story takes place in australia did you know that when i you had were a no kid? idea I had no idea no no idea i mean zach i could see being australian he looks like a hemsworth he does but he there's not one australian accent in the whole goddamn movie right i had no idea i also didn't think i knew that australia had rainforests i didn't either i, I thought, thought it was, was like, like the outback desert mm-hmm. and then like a coastal beach region yeah that's what i thought but yeah apparently uh, they have rainforests, and one of them is near Mount Warning, which is a real place in the movie. Oh, interesting. <laughs> um, but yeah, it does become more obvious because, like, at some point she looks at his driver's license and it says Australia, and also there are like kangaroos and platypi and you know what you're right there really yeah. are yes are yeah okay australian creature the animals are australian yeah but and, like the artwork the at the people. beginning is very like aboriginal okay um, yes with the handprints and things yes, yes i know mm-hmm. what you're talking about yeah so, you're right you're right you're right yeah very interesting but i just never thought about it um and it's probably because the movie came from an australian couple <laughs> uh diana and wayne young uh, so Diana used to tell her children stories of fairies that lived in a rainforest called Fern Gully, and their children loved the stories um, so much that they decided that this might be a good way to teach other children about the environment and the importance of protecting it. So Diana wrote the story of Fern Gully 15 years before the film's release. Wayne said the couple planned a film adaptation for five years, then spent seven years of dreaming and hustling followed by another three years of production. I'm sure. This was a labor of love. Because, I mean, they're probably not artists, right? They have to no. get somebody to draw this scene for scene. Yeah. And something really important to note um, and remember about this time is that animation overall was in a slump. Mm-hmm. I mean, Disney movies were flopping left and right. Like, it was not, uh, like, because we're talking about this is like 15 years in, of work, basically. Right. And I'm trying to kind of get this off the ground. So, Things were, like, not looking good for, like, a random Australian couple making a big-budget <laughs> animated yeah. film. Like, it kind of seemed like 
hand-drawn animation was like on its way yeah, out. Yeah, Ariel like reawoke Disney and mm-hmm. that was way shorter than 15 years before this. Yeah, and that's the thing. Like everything I watched about Ferngully said it wasn't until The Little Mermaid released that people were like, okay, animated films can be successful again. Mm-hmm. And that, so it's like kind of funny that like because of the success of Little Mermaid, Ferngully was made. Right. Because they would not have greenlit it otherwise. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the first movie I saw in the theaters. Yeah. Little Mermaid. Like, it was a phenomenon. Yeah. It really was. It was like the Frozen of my yeah. era. <laughs> it, like, <laughs> brought people back to seeing Disney animation. Yeah. I wasn't alive for it, but I, uh, <laughs> yeah. I've heard the tale. tale. <laughs> I've heard the tale. Um. <laughs> Ariel and Taylor Swift, both born yes. the same year. Beautiful. <laughs> Um, so Wayne Young is like, this is perfect. I'm going to get Ferngully off the ground. He's so excited about it. But someone who did not love this new project was the guy running Disney at the time, Jeffrey Katzenberg. What's his problem? Lots of things, apparently. So Disney did not produce this film. It was done by FAI Films, so not even one of the other big names. Right. Um, And usually little films, like little production companies like this, would have no chance against Disney. So, Mm -hmm. like, they weren't super worried about it. But once people got a hold of the script and found the environmental message of the film, they really fell in love with it, and there was a lot of buzz around town. So soon the little movie that could started to attract some big voice names. Cheech and Chong came back together after six years of being apart. Good job. And to star in this that. movie. <laughs> and star. You can't even really tell that it's them. They're like the most side characters. Yeah. They said, we hadn't seen each other in six years. We came in, did our voice work in under an hour, and then went and got a pizza, and then didn't see each other again for years. <laughs> <laughs> um, Christian Slater joined as the voice of Pips. Tim Curry was Hexus. And, of course, Robin Williams was Batty, which we will talk more about in a minute. Um, But it's not all about the voices. You also have to have animators. And they did come from Disney. Wow. So this is kind of where the big point of contention starts to come in. So Bill Croyer, the director, was taken on a tour of Disney by someone named Bill Cox. He was the screenwriter for the movie. Bill took him into Disney and started pointing out talented young illustrators who he thought might be good for Fern Gully. Uh, but they didn't know want anyone to know who they really were. So Bill, the director, wore a false name tag. So nobody knew that he was poaching Disney animators. That is not fair. No, it's not. You can't do that. Katzenberg was pretty upset about this. He of goes, course. how dare you poach my <laughs> animators? So to get back at them, he told Robin Williams, well, you're not allowed to do Fern Gully because you're already signed on to do Aladdin. Robin Williams is not like being told what to do. He goes, <laughs> no, I'm going to do both because number one, I agreed to do this before Aladdin. Fun fact, Fern Gully was his first ever voice acting role. No. Yeah. Good for him for that rap then. <laughs> and he did like, I don't know, like 14 hours of material. Because he just says whatever he wants. I know. He's like, that bat just starts saying random things in the movie. And you're like, yes, man, I wonder does. how many takes they <laughs> took to get that sentence out. Ridiculous. Um, but, but yeah, so that's his first role. And number two, he really believed in the message of the movie. He goes, no, this movie is important. And if I can lend my voice to make it more successful, like I'm going to do that. He and the other actors even took a pay cut so that the movie could stay within their budget because they believed in it so much. That's so good. I know. So because they couldn't legally stop him, Katzenberg 
and Disney changed tactics. Disney started renting out all the recording studios in L.A. that Fern Gully was planning to use. They did this so many times that the voice, the cast ended up recording the audio for the movie in the back of a bar because they literally could not find studio space because Disney kept taking all of it to try and sync this movie. That is so rude. And then Disney tried to buy the bar so that they could evict them out of it. Like Disney has any problems. Like, come I know. on. And it's also like, you're literally coming off back to back. Like, Little Mermaid and Beauty, Beauty and, and the, the Beast. Beast. I don't want to hear it. Like that you're upset about this little tiny movie. They had to have already had like some Tinkerbell stuff in their back pocket that they thought they were going to do. But it's like, calm down. Like, cause Didn't you know, stop Disney... them for ants. I know. Did... <laughs> That's true. Disney sits on things for like a long time yeah. before they do them. So I don't know. I don't know what was going on, but, and like, and it's very clear to me that like, this just came from left field. Like, this came from a couple in Australia. So it's not like, it's like, oh, well, we were going to do, um, you know, a Cinderella movie, and now you're doing a Cinderella movie. It's mm -hmm. like, this is very different. Um, so the owners of the bar refused to let Disney do that. Um, so Fern Gully was able to keep going. <laughs> um, ultimately, though, Disney did kind of make out in the end because Fern Gully was not a huge success. It made some money. The budget was $24 million, and it made $32.7 at the box office. Oh, that's good. Pretty good. And when it was released on VHS, it sold 5 million copies on VHS, which is pretty good. Yeah, that's high. Yeah. Um, and to stick with the message of the movie, the profits were donated to environmental causes such as Greenpeace, the Rainforest Foundation Fund, and the Sierra Club, as well as a special fund benefiting environmental projects worldwide that was administered by the Smithsonian, um, which was pretty fucking cool. So Krista, we didn't talk about her voice casting, but she was voiced by an actress named Samantha Mathis. Um, but according to Hero Wiki, Winona Ryder, Jennifer Connelly, Jody Benson, Ariel, Whoa. Christy Swanson, Kate Blanchett, Melanie Griffith, Kate Winslet, this is a list. Jada Pinkett Smith, Sharon Stone, Minnie Driver, and Meg Ryan were all considered to voice Krista before Samantha Mathis was cat. I don't Caught. even know who Samantha Mathis is. She is like... You know, she's been in a bunch of things. Like, she's not really recognizable. Oh. Um, she's actually most well-known, and this is, like, really dark. Um, but she was River Phoenix's girlfriend and was with him when he OD'd. Oh, no. So, like, that's kind of, like, what she's now most known for. And Fern Gully. Um, <laughs> and, and this other delight, Fern Gully. here's the thing. What I would like to know is, this is a really big list of big names. Why her? Were these women actually being auditioned, or were they, was this like the dream list? It was like, let's call was around. Was it the dream roster? That's what I would like to know. I don't know. see Kate Blanchett being like, hi, I would Who? like to be a fairy. Kate Blanchett. That is so random, in my opinion. Yeah. I don't know. And Jody Benson, like, that's interesting, but like, once Disney owns you, oh. they kind of own you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, Jodie Benson did a little bit of Tinkerbell early on when they needed people. Yeah. Well, and also, I found this really funny. So some people, so I don't know if you guys know this, but after, so when Aladdin was released, Robin Williams was really upset because he told Disney, I'm going to do the film. He goes, but I don't want you using my name in any marketing. 
He's like, I just want it to be Aladdin, not Robin Williams starring in Aladdin. You know, he's like, I just want the movie to speak for itself. So, like, don't use my name as, like, a gimmick. And he also said, and don't use my voice as a way to sell merchandise and other things. And they did the exact opposite of that. <laughs> of course they did. And this caused, like, a real bad relationship between Robin Williams and Disney then. And some people think that this was Katzenberg did it on purpose because he was mad at Robin Williams for being in Ferngully. Interesting. I know. Because then Robin Williams was not in The Return of Jafar. No. But he was in Aladdin King of Thieves. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Maybe yes, different is. ownership of Disney by that point. Maybe. <laughs> Guys, we've got to investigate this. Yes, we this do. Robin Williams uh, Disney we situation. are starting some rumors. <laughs> um, so movie released in 1992 as we said earlier so i did put that in the notes um and then in 1998 there was a sequel which i did not know about it was called fern gully 2 the magical rescue the sequel focused more on animal rights than the environment and it was basically about krista and pips trying to save some animals from poachers but there's also like a fairy carnival going on and they do a lot of moving around in a clown car which i'm like they can fly i don't want to do why that. are they in the clown car I don't know. It just... Is Zach in it? Where is Zach? No, Zach is not in oh, it. Oh, this is upsetting. Um, and none of the original cast reprised their roles. I want to see Zach, like, in his yeah. future life. I, I know. We need, like, Aaron Brockovich-style Zach. I want him to be, like, the foreman of an environmental, like, construction company. Yeah. He's just, like, hanging out with, like, Diane Fossey. Yeah. We'd love to see And it. he, like, surfs on the weekends because yes. he's Australian. So, so, duh. He's Australian with a definite, like, California accent. <laughs> Um, so now that we have the plot and the production, uh, let's talk about the impact of the film. There were a lot of overt messages in the movie, but upon rewatch, I found a lot more subtle messages as well. Um, like we see at the end that Krista and Zach start to defeat Hexus, but everyone has to pitch in to finish the job. And I feel like this is a really important way to end the movie because obviously we need big change. And that's what Zach goes back to the humans to do. So there's both messages where, like, somebody has to go back, talk to the logging companies, fix things at the big level. But also it's like we need a whole bunch of individual change, too. And it's hard to put both of those messages forward. Mm. But I think that Fern Gully did a really good job. And I just I like that a young girl kind of takes on this really big responsibility and she doesn't think twice about it, you know. Like, there's no hesitation. She's just like, yeah, I'm going to take this seat. I'm going to fly into that fucking monster, and I'm, like, probably going to die. How, <laughs> how Greta of her. Um, but, yeah, I think that's the end result is that we can't do it all on our own. And the movie ends with a message. It simply reads, for our children and our children's children. And I know I learned a lot from Fern Gully when I was a kid, so I hope the next generation does, too. And that's Krista. I love that. Just the story of Ferngully. Krista. <laughs> we can't get through it without saying hi to Miss Krista. Hello. Spelled Krista. different. Spelled yes. different. But that's okay. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> um, yeah, I loved Ferngully as a kid. I still love it today. I've shown it to my kids. Mm -hmm. It's a good movie. It's a, it good, a good, movie. solid movie. Quick, like, hour and 15. But yeah. I did not realize that it's not on any streaming service. So yeah. I did have to rent it. Oh, bummer. <laughs> I feel like it's up there. With, I have the I have the um, DVD. Mm. Uh, I feel like it's up there with like Swan Princess. Yes. And like Anastasia. Thumbelina. Yeah. Anastasia. Thumbelina. Like a very good non-Disney mm -hmm. animation. Yes. Agreed. 
All right. Well, let's get into part two and another cocktail. More science. Yay. Second story. Part two. This is a little <laughs> more realistic. So much more sciencey. I'm going to do the best I absolutely can. Okay. But I don't know that I'm going to do the best at it. <laughs> well, that's how I felt in my story. So that's all right. Well, this the is just theme of tonight. one of those weeks. Um, okay. So do you want to know what you're drinking? Yes, I do. This is called Rosalind's DNA. And Ooh. it's gin and rose liqueur with a delicate hand. Mm-hmm. And Prosecco. And then um, a little bit of lemon and lime with a double helix garnish. Ooh. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. Mostly tastes like champagne. Mm. Love that. I love champagne, so that's yeah. perfect. <laughs> Add more of any of the ingredients, the flavors mm. you like the most. If you like gin, if you like rose, if you like lemon or lime. I would say, though, it kind of tastes like, like a champagne version of, like, Sprite. Oh, yes. That's what it kind of feels like to me. Good. Like boozy Sprite. <laughs> good, 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 good. That's what I was going yeah. for. <laughs> um, okay, so tell me, what do you know about Rosalind Franklin? Nothing. Uh, apparently, it's science-related. She's a scientist. Yeah. Um, you did a double helix with the lemon and lime, so I'm guessing she had some, and it's called Rosalind's DNA, so I'm guessing it had something to do with DNA, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I literally don't know. Perfect. <laughs> She's a relatively new banger who just recently people are starting to like really push her story as it's become more uh, important because many of the men that are involved in this story are very famous. Many of the men involved in this story have won Nobel Prizes uh, and are household names in science. So, okay, I was telling Jake, I. Uh, was doing a story about uh, the double helix and DNA. And he goes, oh, yeah, Watson and Crick, DNA, double helix. Like, right off the top of his head, knew the names of these guys. And, and then uh-huh, <laughs> And then I'm explaining the story and why it pissed me off so much. So be ready to just be angry. I can't wait. Okay. So, obviously, I watched or read Wikipedia and bio and, like, other articles online, but I watched a really good documentary. It's probably about 10 or 15 years old because the men in the story were still alive to give interviews. She was born in 1920. So, at this point, most of these people would be either 100 years old or dead um, or, like, in their late 90s. Uh, and that documentary was called DNA Secret Photo 51. And I also watched a, a cute cartoon Ted Ed about her that's like meant for Women's Love History those. Month for kids, <laughs> like on like, you know, YouTube. It was great. Yeah. All right. So Rosalind Franklin was born in London to an affluent British Jewish family on July 25th, 1920. Dad was Ellis Franklin, who was a merchant banker who taught at the working men's college in the evenings. So this is like just when they're trying to get university education available to less affluent people. Mm-hmm. Her mom's name was Muriel Muriel Whaley. That's kind of all I could find about her. She was she had five kids, so she was a stay-at-home mom okay. to a wealthy family. Mm-hmm. Uh, David was her older brother. Then it was her. Then Colin. Roland and Jennifer were her younger siblings. 
The family earned its money through banking and publishing and had a proud tradition of philanthropy and scholarship and volunteering for social classes. So this is like a very giving family. Mm -hmm. Um, Her family had come to England pretty early on from Central Europe. It was in the 1700s. They came over with a big group of like Jewish people who were migrating Mm -hmm. um, and it became a very close-knit and wealthy group of Jewish people living in England. Multi-generational. For example, her great uncle was the first practicing Jew to be on the British cabinet. Her aunt was married to the attorney general of the British mandate to Palestine. And her direct uncle was a prominent figure in the women's suffrage movement. So, like, her family, to say the least, was involved. They are. They're very involved. (laughs) From an early age. Rosalind showed exceptional abilities in school and at home. She was great at memory games. When she was six, she joined her older brother in private school in West London, where her aunt described her like this. Rosalind is alarmingly clever. She spends all her time doing arithmetic for pleasure. Like this girl was on it. By nine years old, she's in a boarding school for ladies. And by 11, she's at St. Paul's Girls School in West London. This is one of the few girls' schools in the area that teaches physics and chemistry. Despite the name of the school, it has no religious affiliation. So it's St. Paul's, (laughs) but it's not a religious school. And um, it was rare, but this school prepared girls for careers. So it was about getting... Getting women working. So this okay. is like the era in between World War One and World War Two. Okay. She was excellent at science and Latin and sports. And her friends say that she was the best in math class. She was the best in science class. She was the best in sports. Anything she did, she was the best at it. She learned German. She became fluent in French. She was the top of her class. She won awards. Her only educational weakness was actually music. <laughs> and her music teacher once called her mother to see if she had any problems hearing. Oh, my God. <laughs> she was like, can she hear? She sounds like a real Hermione Granger. Mm-hmm. And music is her divination. Yeah, she's just <laughs> Totally toned up. <laughs> Poor girl. At this time, her family is very active in helping Jewish refugees escape Central Europe when they're fleeing to England. So her family actually took in two Jewish boys to live there. She's older in older high school. Um, and they're helping rehome Jewish people who are fleeing from Germany, Austria, France, etc. So just again, her family is very involved. Yeah. With six distinctions, she passes her matura- matural. I've had that word matriculation. In my, yeah, matriculation. <laughs> I always I forget hate how to say that it. Word. <laughs> yeah. So she has six distinctions. She passes her matriculation a year early. So she gets out of high school a year early and wins a scholarship to a university for thirty pounds a year for three years and an additional five pounds a year from her grandfather. And her dad is like, "Don't take that thirty dollars. Give the thirty dollars to the refugees. I'll pay for you to go to college." Aww, that's nice. Yeah. Rosalind went to Newham College in Cambridge, which is like the female college of Cambridge at mm-hmm. the time. Mary. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Sorry, guys. My dog is scratching her ear. 
1938, she is at this female college of Cambridge. She is studying chemistry within the natural sciences. Her dad really didn't want her to go to college. Like he's kind of supporting her, but he's like, why don't you just join philanthropy and the family volunteer work, etc." But she's like not having it. Mm-hmm. In college, she is introduced to X-ray crystallography. Okay. So <laughs> there are things that are super small. We mm-hmm. learned in World War II, like atoms can be split in half and cause explosions. Right. So science is saying, okay, there are things that are so small that we can't see them and we can't photograph them to study them. So if we photograph them through an X-ray, through a crystal, it then like makes it bigger, almost like a transparency in an old school building. Like you put the paper down and then it shines it up and then you photograph it. Okay. And then you can do all the measurements or not. So this is some new science, X-ray crystallography. That's where she learns about it. Um, And the photo that they take ends up being identical just at a different scale. So you can measure all the angles and figure out the molecular makeup of something. So, In learning about this, she becomes one of the rare people in the human race at this time that understands that even things that are too small to see are as real as the shoes on your feet. Yeah. Like they exist, even though you can't see them. Mm -hmm. Like fairies. (laughs) Like fairies. You must clap. In 1941, she's awarded second class honors from her final exams and this distinction for women at the time was equivalent to a bachelor's degree okay so cambridge was not giving out bachelor's degrees yet this is 41 i think they start giving them out to women in 47 okay um cambridge is like okay you're doing great you can go get a job (laughs) do what you gotta do so Rosalind, like in her last year, meets Adrian Weil, who was a former student of Marie Curie. Uh, and she had a huge influence on her life and her career and helped her improve her conversational French, French skills. It's like a big women supporting women situation. Mm-hmm. Um, but Cambridge did for Rosalind what a university does for most people. Like her dad wanted her to come home, get into philanthropy. Be a practicing Jew and like get on with it. But Cambridge gave her a philosophy on life. It separated her from her previous beliefs. It grows her sphere of reference and makes her very socially and politically aware. And she gets a job, uh, a fellowship at Newman College. And she joins a physical chemistry lab. It's like her dream job. She's working under a guy named Ronald George Rayford Nourish, who later wins a Nobel Prize. I'll say this about all the men that she's around. (laughs) She works there for a year and didn't have a ton of success because he's kind of an alcoholic. He's obstinate. Mm. He's overbearing. She writes in one of her journals that he kind of made her hate work. Oh, no. Um, We've all had those bosses. I know. Yeah. like It's an abusive work environment. That's what I wrote in my notes. Mm. Um. So she resigns from the fellowship, but when you get a fellowship, you have to fulfill certain requirements. So she gets permission to fulfill it under the National Service Act, working for the British Coal Utilization Research Association. So now she's studying coal. She's still, this head guy is still technically in charge, but she's working under two Jewish refugees. So it's like closer to her wheelhouse. Um, 
at first she lives in Adrian Wiles boarding house for a bit, then in like with her cousin in her uncle's house. And um, what she's doing is studying how porous coal is. So she's determining its density using helium. Okay. And in doing so, she discovered how much like permeable space is in coal. And because of that, she develops the new wartime gas mask that's used in World War II. That's oh. like saving people's lives. That's crazy. So it works better because she understood what porous coal could get through and not get through. Oh. So wild. It ends up that ends up being what her PhD thesis is on. It's called The Physical Chemistry of Solid Organic Chloroids with Special Reference to Coal. I don't know. Misty knows. Dr. She, Misty Dr. Knows. Misty. Tell me about it. Always knows. But she, but, so she gets her PhD in coal. Holes in coal. Her. <laughs> and, and she writes multiple papers about it. At least five papers that are still referenced today. She is like the seminal work on coal. And like creates some of the terms that people still use. At the end of the war, Rosalind asked Adrian to let her know if there's any job openings. And she's like, okay, let me... And this is what she says. Are there job openings for a physical chemist who knows very little about physical chemistry, but quite a lot about holes in coal? <laughs> She's very dramatic about herself. So Adrian introduces Rosalind to a French scientist, and she ends up getting a job at a lab in France. This is like directly after the war. She loves living in Paris. She has a flat. She's wearing the latest Dior fashion for women. She's having friends over and cooking. She loves going hiking. She's walking past Notre Dame every day on the way to work. It's a dream. It's a dream. So jealous of her. I know. Honestly, I know. To she, be smart and live in Paris. I know. And to be, like, cute and, like, have your cute little clothes. And well, and it seems like she can, like, she hasn't, we haven't caught a whiff of a guy yet. So she's no. single in Paris. Very independent. Very like, independent. This is great. Yeah. Mm. So this is where she really studies x-ray crystallography. And... He taught her, uh, Jacques, this, her like boss at this place, really teaches her how to perfect this. Mm-hmm. She applies it to her coal research and writes several more papers about coal and carbon to the point where she's getting international recognition for yeah. her coal and carbon work. And she's also going off hiking in Norway and Wales and the Alps and like just doing her thing. <sighs> I should say that there are risks for workers who are using x-ray crystallography. Um, they had to get routinely checked for their exposure to x-rays. Uh, and if your body exceeded the safe limits, you would have to spend a few weeks working from home. And she hated that. <laughs> hated that. So she's working in Paris. It's been four years. She calls her friend Dorothy Hodgkins, who goes on to win a Nobel Prize, <laughs> for advice. Um, should I stay in France or should I go back home to England? And Dorothy is like, girl, if you want to be a renowned English scientist, you have to go back to England. So she leaves kind of begrudgingly because she loves her life in France. She's offered a dream position at King's College, which is like the 
you know, it's like Cambridge and Oxford and King's College. Yeah. Like those are the the big ones. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a highly prestigious research college. J.T. Randall offers her this job in the medical research biophysics. Originally, she's appointed to work on X-ray diffraction of proteins, but she receives her letter while she's leaving Paris. Like, hey, when you get here, I want you to work on DNA. Um, because developments in the field, I think you might be the only person who can get a good x-ray picture of DNA. I really okay. think like you're the one. Mm-hmm. At this point, here's what we know about DNA. It's made of like sugar strand and a protein strand and then has like four other bases in it. Okay. But everybody's like, how can DNA be like the basis of human life? Right. If it only is built of like four things, but also is it even the basis of human life or are we over overviewing it? Like we know very little about DNA still. No, at this oh, point. Oh, at this point. Okay. Yeah. Today. <laughs> She's the reason we know a lot about DNA. Um, no, like we knew very, very little. You know how like in science class where you had to connect like the T connects with the A and the G connects with the C oh. and you have to like build them up and yeah. blah, 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 blah on the string. And they, this one can only touch this one. That is kind of like the field she's working in okay. photographing and people don't quite know that okay. yet. Um, and also at this time, there's this guy named Randolph Singer who prepared a highly purified DNA sample and he's like distributing them out to labs. Okay. So her lab is one of the ones that gets them. So she gets to work with a purified actual DNA sample for her pictures. This is her assignment. She arrives at King's College to use her x-ray pictures to figure this shit out. A PhD student named Raymond Gosling is assigned to work under her. And like he does interviews in this documentary. He does a great job explaining like how the lab reacted to her. This was a very prejudiced research lab it would be like a woman trying to be in the golf masters club like it's exclusive it's male and Uh you stick out like a sore thumb you can't eat in the correct lunch room Mm. because you have to eat with the students in the cafeteria and this is for the men researchers (sighs) yes it's very degrading um he at the time of this was a professor working at king's college after having worked under her for like all these years um okay so She's appointed to work there. They're working in like a basement closet for early <laughs> DNA work. You know, it's a research scientist. Yeah. They're not millionaires. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's still a crater out front of the college from World War II. Like oh this is gosh. recent enough that they haven't fixed all the buildings yet. Um, but the other guy working in this lab, his name was Maurice Wilkins. He had a lab in the building. He's fresh off the Manhattan Project. He's trying to take pictures of DNA, but he's not that good at it. The old lab equipment is really hard to work with. Um, and Rosalind quickly learned that, like, I can work within the parameters of this old lab equipment, but it's going to be really hard for me to work within the old boys club yeah. environment. She's really unhappy and, like, sad working there. But there's also the biggest problem is not the boys club. It's confusion over who's in charge. Mm-hmm. When Rosalind arrived, Wilkins was on holiday. She got hired. She was given his Ph.D. student and his lab. So Wilkins returns, doesn't have his lab, doesn't have his Ph.D. student and thought that Rosalind was his assistant. <laughs> so they but. 
the boss, JT, never came in and was like, you're in charge. No, you're in charge. So this leads to, like, years-long rivalry of these two just oh hating each other, which sucks because if they had worked together, I think they really could have been successful much yeah. earlier than other people, mm-hmm. like if somebody had come in. Um, the guy who hired her actually wrote Rosalind a letter, and this has been quoted by people later on to prove that she was in charge. He said, quote, as far as the experimental x-ray effort, there would be for the moment only yourself and Gosling, who's the PhD student. That's pretty explanatory yeah. that like you're in charge of the DNA. Yeah. Um, so she thinks she's an independent researcher. Wilkins thinks that she's an assistant. And like when he would come over to check on her work or look in her microscope, she would be like, go the fuck away, man. Like, why are you checking in on me? And he thought it was his job to check in on her. And it's even worse because they communicate a lot differently. She was the type of woman who looks you in the eye, doesn't beat around the bush, does not take prisoners lightly, looks you in the eye, tells you what she's thinking. And Wilkins kind of seems like he was on the spectrum, like he's really uncomfortable being forward. So their personalities are going to clash to start with. If she was a man, nobody would have said anything about her upfront attitude, but Mm -hmm. she wasn't. Um, Okay. So Rosalind is working with Goslin to apply her expertise on x-ray diffraction techniques. Um, she is using this fine focus x-ray tube and a micro camera and she adjusts it and focuses it carefully. But using her physics and chemistry background, she makes a crucial innovation that made the camera chamber one that could be controlled for humidity. So she can take a picture in very dry or very white or sorry, very wet circumstances. Um, And like when Wilkins asks her about it, she's just like, don't talk to me. And like, (laughs) he gets really offended about that. Um, So she also, I should say, has this really booming social life. She's dating like the first chair violinist of the Philharmonic. Even though she doesn't understand music. No, doesn't understand music. She's like, babe, you're so good. (laughs) Um, She would go out on the social scene. She owned her own flat. She just like is doing it all. I love it. Um, But all this tension at the lab is really hard, and it's making it hard for her to solve the structure of DNA. Mm -hmm. Then this new player comes on the scene, 23-year-old American boy James Watson waltzes on over to Europe to study genes. Watson goes to a presentation by Wilkins and sees one of his fuzzy photographs and tries to wrangle an invitation to work at King's College. He's like trying to buddy buddy with Wilkins. But again, I think Wilkins is on the spectrum, so he does not understand or take the bait. So then Watson gets invited to work at Cambridge and he gets into the office of another X-ray crystallographer, Francis Crick, uh, who's an old friend of Wilkins, and they immediately get along. Uh, it's an hour away from King's College, but over there, they're bonding and having boy time and learning about DNA. Meanwhile, Rosalind is getting a sarcastic nickname. They start calling her Rosie. She takes her work too seriously. Nobody calls her that to her face, but everybody calls her that behind her back sarcastically. They're like treating her like a child. That's so annoying. And it would be fun. Like, you know how sometimes like when you're in a group of people and you get a nickname you don't like, it's like a badge of honor. Like, oh, they're finally calling me by a nickname. No, this is strictly behind her back. 
Anyway, with her new ingenious camera, Rosalind is about to produce a better x-ray image. Not only a better, the best x-ray <laughs> image of DNA of all time. And she immediately discovered, because she had this dry and wet situation, that x-ray exists in two forms. There's the A, which is like the drier, and the B, which is the wetter. And the way the documentary described it is that earlier pictures of DNA, it would be like if a line drawing of Mickey Mouse was superimposed with a line drawing of Donald Duck on top of it. You wouldn't be able to know what either of the characters looked like. Okay. Because all of the lines are mixed up. But once you have it split out into this like humid and non-humid environment, Mm -hmm. you can see that they're entirely different things. Okay. So she's the reason that we have that. Mm. So to talk about this picture, it's May 1952. While um, (laughs) the boys are over there speculating (laughs) what DNA might look like, she sets up the camera. It's a 100-hour exposure. So she's about to take this picture for 100 hours oh of x-rays. 100-hour exposure. That's so many days. It is. I think it's four days, yeah. Um, so she had to bundle together 20 DNA molecules to make them big enough to photograph. Today, you can do it with one. Back then, 20 DNA molecules would make it the width of a hair. Um, again, she had to do a hundred hours today. We can take a picture of DNA in seconds. Um, and today a computer will immediately calculate all of the angles of the image and bring up the measurements for you. She had to calculate every angle and strand by hand and for a single image that could take more than a year. So this is the type of job that takes perseverance, motivation, patience, and a real drive to understand DNA. So when looking at the humid DNA, Rosalind is the first to note in her research journal, quote, there's evidence for a spiral, a straight chain untwisted is highly improbable. There's an absence of reflection on the median and that suggests a spiral structure. First person in history to write that down. She goes and does a presentation about her findings. And guess who's sitting in the audience? Little young American Watson boy who takes all this information back to Crick. Crick and Watson decide they're going to build a DNA model and they build it using all of her ideas. Within a week, they invite all of the scientists around to come and see this model. And Rosalind shows up terribly amused. She looks at it and goes (laughs) in front of everybody. A, this is wrong. B, this is wrong. C, this is wrong. And outlines, like, this is, you clearly don't understand how to evaluate an x-ray image. Like, Uh obviously, you're idiots. This is a huge embarrassment to Cambridge. Uh And, like, these guys are not allowed to make models anymore. And that's something that's, for a while, that's something about Rosalind that's very important. She doesn't believe in theoretical science. Okay. She's only going to build a model once she has all, every number. Okay. So her research takes longer than other people's research yes because they're guessing they're guessing and she's like this is affirmative um so again the head of watson and crick is like no more making models you guys are an embarrassment please stop doing that (laughs) so she made some immediate discoveries with dna uh which she presents and there's the two spiral the three spiral she's studying a b there's so much going on um but her photo ends up being labeled 
photo 51 and people don't see this she's the only one that has this photo because she took it they've just seen her present that she thinks it's a spiral and maybe a double helix maybe a triple helix she's not sure if there's two strands or three strands yet okay by 1952 though she decides it is a double helix and writes a manuscript about it it takes her years to calculate she is um researching and doing everything by hand but unbeknownst to her her information is being handed over to cambridge (gasps) without her consent who did that so wilkins feels shut out of the lab because she has the lab and his phd student we don't know whether he outright gave them her data or they're just like his friends that he's known so they're talking about it and like speculating together but either way the boys at cambridge are finding out that she knows a lot about dna and they do not that is so frustrating yeah i also do want to say watson and crick who do end up breaking this thing wide open they are very intelligent and they were poised to figure it out but they couldn't have figured it out on the timeline they did without her numbers. Yeah. So it's not that they're idiots. Like no, they are yeah, they're not scientists frauds, at Cambridge. But... Um, well, I would say Watson's a little bit of a fraud. <laughs> uh, because that, he literally stole everything. Yeah. Okay. So she becomes around this time known as the dark lady around the lab. Because she's so unhappy at King's. She even arranges to leave. She agrees to finish analyzing the data and write up her findings, but she's like, I'm going to leave at the end of the year. Um, But Wilkins and Rosalind, they're just like never going to get along. So she's writing up all her finishing data and Gosling, her PhD student, is like, I don't know how Wilkins got his hand on the picture. He's like, maybe I gave it to him because Rosalind was leaving. Maybe she gave him her files. He's like, I just don't remember. He's like, I wish I could tell you in the documentary that it was me, that it was her. But he got all of her files because she had to. She had to write up her reports and leave all her intellectual property. So Wilkins gets a hold of the picture. Now there's a new boy in town, scientist Pauling, last name Pauling. He makes a model writes a paper problem is it's similar to the incorrect model that watson and crick made earlier and they're like okay once he publishes this um rosalind's gonna prove him wrong and we're gonna have like six weeks to come up with our model so they have six weeks to solve the problem of dna before this other scientist does it Around the time of her last presentation at King's College, she's getting packed up and Watson comes in to Rosalind's office. This is the young American guy and goes, listen, Pauling's coming out with this paper. We can prove him wrong if we pull our data, which is her data and him with nothing. He's like asking to do teamwork. And she's like, no, like I'm not going to do I'm not going to do that. Um, In Watson's account, he implies that she was incompetent at analyzing x-ray pictures, and that's why she wouldn't give it over. Um, In his account, he actually says, quote, she began to advance towards me, and I left thinking she would strike me. She was half his size. And um, this book that he wrote, we'll talk about in a minute, that shits all over Rosalind Franklin. So then he runs into Wilkins and Wilkins is like, oh, well, Watson, you wanted her data. I don't have her data, but here's this photo. 
that I have. And Watson writes, my mouth fell open and my pulse began to race. So now Watson and Crick have the DNA picture. They take the photo. They can deduce the number of units in the helix. They can tell, based on just her picture, that in each twist of DNA, there are 10 building blocks. Okay, her picture's that, that good. Photo. I can't read that for shit. No, I don't even understand what it, it is. It looks like an old, like... You're looking down on the top of it, so yeah. you can see the X of, like, where it would twist. Yeah, that's what I didn't expect mm. when I first saw the photo. I was like, oh, it's from above. Yeah. So bizarre. I don't understand how anyone read that. No, me neither. <laughs> um... So based on that picture that they have, they get permission to make a new model. And then they have another idea. They go, she won't give us their, her data. But every year, King's College Biophysics has to publish a report of what all their workers were doing that year. So they go into King's College and find her data there. So they take all of her numbers that she calculated for multiple years. They take her picture. They find out it's two chains. Um, they find out that she figured out that the double helix had spirals running opposite to one another. And then they twist it around to make it the ladder form. So they figure out it's the ladder sections in the middle. Uh -huh. But by using her double helix opposite spiral structure and all of her numbers. <sighs> That's so, so irritating. It's very, very irritating. This is two years worth of her data. And, like, they do have to put puzzle pieces together, right? right. They thought first is, like, the A is always with the A and the T is with the T. And then they're like, oh, no, it has to be the A and the T, the G and the C, and they have to alternate. Right. And, like, you can unzip it and rezip it to make new specimens or whatever. That's how it's the building blocks of life. Mm -hmm. But they could not have done that in six weeks to beat this time clock without all of her year's worth of work and right. her photograph that nobody can take a photograph that clear but her. Right. I can't imagine how fuzzy the other ones were, honestly. I, I don't even understand. It looks like a cataract. That's it, what the picture yes, looks it like. Does. <laughs> so it's Saturday, um, 28th of February, 1953, when Watson and Crick are in a pub bragging that they discovered the secrets of life. But how do they prove it? Because they can't use her numbers in their paper without giving her all the credit. So it's crazy to me that they end up writing a, a paper on this. So here's what they want to do. They want to publish, and Cambridge and King's College come up with a deal. Here's what we'll do. We'll publish Watson and Crick's model with all the things they found out, the ladder, the double helix. Right after that, we'll put Wilkins' paper with his assistant, and right after that, we'll put Rosalind's paper with Gosling in the back. So what it ends up looking like is they discovered it and Watkins and Wilkins and Rosalind are just papers backing up their findings. It's so shady. Especially since hers comes so at shady. the end. This comes out in Nature Magazine. The present day editor of Nature Magazine, who was the editor of Nature Magazine for two decades, says there's one sentence in the article where he smells a rat. It says... It says in their article, we have been stimulated by the general knowledge of her work. <laughs> but he goes, that's a lie. They had particular knowledge of her work. They right. had her numbers. That's a lie. Right. They flat out lied and then published it as if it was their own idea. 
God, this is so reminiscent of the leprosy episode. Uh, it's crazy. Yeah. You're right. It's the like Alice the Ball. exact same thing it as is. Alice Ball. Yes, it is. So she writes an article explaining the double helix. She wrote it a month before they even made their model. She had it. She had it written. She hadn't published it yet. It's sitting there. She actually even mailed it in. I think they have it like a dated, like mailed in and sent away March 6th. And they like came out with theirs February 28th. But she would have had to figure it out and write it and have it sitting there and mailed like before they would have had theirs done. Right. For it to be there. Um so she even goes back in her own paper and like handwrites in, yeah, this information is supported by what Watson and Crick just found out. Like she thinks they figured it out and that oh she's like, Oh my gosh, so she doesn't know that they stole no, it yet. She dies not knowing they stole no! it. Yeah. Oh no. She handwrites in no! like, Oh my gosh. Like, yeah, I, I was right. Wow. You know, <gasps> she's, she's actually not even mad. I don't think she's <sighs> just like, yeah, they're, they're right. That's cool. Many call Rosalind Watson and Crick's unknowing and unrecognized collaborator because really without her, they didn't have very much. And this has been noted of one of the most critically overlooked moments in DNA history because we don't have the dates written down of how and when Rosalind Franklin realized that DNA was a double helix. Like if we have the dates, then she wins. Yeah. If we have the publication dates, they win. Today, Rosalind's evidence and photographs and calculations are seen to be an equal player to the contributions and discovery of DNA rather than a footnote in the process. Rosalind had been planning to move from King's College. She went to Birkbeck for a while uh, to a letter in a letter to Adrian, she said it's like moving from a palace to the slums, but mm. pleasanter all the same. Like she knew she was going to a shittier university and just wanted to leave. Um, she was brought on by John Burnell, who promoted female scientists, and she would frequently take him to task on how he ran his lab. And it was nice. She yeah. had a little power while there. She still helped Gosling finish his thesis, even though he wasn't her student anymore. Oh. And at this new placement, she was happy and she was accepted by the men that didn't like overall just treat her like bullshit. And she still used her crystallography to photograph, but she was working on viruses. She believes that her virus work was the most important work she ever did. That's what she thinks. She her work was focused on RNA viruses and plant viruses in like, you know how like fields can get sick like the potato oh, famine yeah she was focusing on like tobacco and turnips and potatoes and peas and like what goes wrong and she's working with this man named aaron clug who goes on to win a nobel prize oh, <laughs> um he becomes a great friend and colleague and um the first World Fair after World War II, she's invited to make a five-foot-tall model of her virus molecule to oh. have on display oh, at the World cool. Fair. She's doing speaking tours in the U.S., and they're all like, you're working on all these plant viruses and doing great things. How do you feel about working on polio? And she's like, okay, yeah, like I can do that for the U.S. public health. She gets a grant for the research. She raises money, but she wants to study live polio strands. And all the labs are like, that doesn't seem safe, but they figure out a way to do it. 
She has a virus research lab where she works from 1953 to 1958. She thrived there and loved it and made some great discoveries revolving around plant viruses and the polio virus. And um, Aaron Klug later uh, thanks her in his Nobel prize speech which she doesn't get that from watson and craig uh he said that she figured out all the geometry for the viruses and it was a really large job and an overwhelming job and she was the only person who could do it and he learned a lot from her uh and she became really famous as an international speaker so she's attempting now to mount the polio virus on crystal tubes to photograph it and study it um but she kind of has to end her work because her health is declining. Mm. While working in the U.S., she had trouble zippering up her skirt. And she goes to doctors and they're like, are you pregnant? And she goes, I wish I were. <laughs> um, so they mark her case urgent. Um, you know, she was in the U.S. trying to climb Mount Whitney and do speaking tours in California. She's only 36 years old. Mm. Um with these severe abdominal pains. And when she gets home, they diagnose her with cancer and she has two tumors in her abdomen. Some people blame the x-ray work. Other people in her family had had cancer though. And also like this, like stomach cancer is prevalent in her ethnic Jew community. Um, But she handled it with grace. She was in the hospital working with her papers and calculations. She was confident that she was going to get better. She, struggled when she could be at home to climb the steps from like her lab to her bedroom Mm -hmm. um it was about two years of illness and painful treatment she asked the doctor for a frank prognosis and he told her that she should seek religion whoa and she is furious yeah because she a is not religious and b was too busy to die (laughs) she had too much to do and she knew it um So she stayed working on science as long as she could until she is permanently moved into a hospital. I mean, up until the day she's moved into a hospital, she's planning to go to this conference with her friends. Like they're all planning to go and they get to England and they're like, hey, we're ready to go to the conference. Where are you? And they can't get a hold of her because she's not at her house because she's at the hospital. And she had she died that weekend. Um Her epitaph on her tomb reads, Rosalind Franklin, scientist, her research and discoveries on virus remain one of the most lasting benefits to mankind. The day she died, the London newspaper had an article about her virus model in the World Fair, and the New York Times says she was one of a select brand of pioneers unraveling viruses and genetics. She went to her grave never knowing how much Watson and Crick took from her, and if she knew, she didn't care. She just didn't care. After her death, Aaron and his colleagues did continue her work on the polio virus, and they did get the picture that she wanted, and they published all of their findings. In 1962... Several years after her death, Watson and Crick and Wilkins won the Nobel Prize for the DNA double helix. And she never would have been remembered for DNA except for one little thing. Watson is a dickhead. (laughs) He wrote a book called The Double Helix in 1968. And in the book, he describes her as uncooperative unattractive un like terrible at interpreting x-rays like he is so mean to her in the book um and yet 
He admits to needing her findings and boasts of using her work without her knowledge or permission. He says, quote, Rosie, of course, did not directly give us the data data for that matter. No one at King's realized they were in our hands. What an idiot. What? What an, an idiot. idiot. <laughs> <laughs> that is so outrageous. I know. What? <laughs> I also love that, like, he kind of reminds me of a guy that, like, kind of walks into a situation, like, says something racist with a bunch of white people around, and he goes, <laughs> you know, because, like, you guys understand. You're like, you're like I don't. I don't want like to... that you're saying that. No, that's like, not okay. No, you know, makes me it, uncomfortable. It kind of like he's saying like, well, she was ugly, mm-hmm. so we I deserved mean, it's, her it's, numbers. It's okay that we stole from her. Like, <laughs> it's like what he's saying. Like, like what? That's not okay. No, it's not. <laughs> and also, like maybe she was disagreeable because everyone was treating her like shit. <laughs> like you weren't allowed to eat yeah. lunch together. <laughs> like terrible. Um. So the book is supposed to be published by Harvard, but what Harvard does is everybody mentioned in the book, Crick, Wilkins, like they all get a chance to read it because Harvard is like everybody who's mentioned, you get a chance to read it and like come back and say yes or no. And they object to the portrayal. Really? These other boys are like, that is not what happened. She is not like that. You can't publish this. Like all the men in this story are like, do not portray Rosalind like that um so Harvard in a highly unprecedented move refuses to publish his book wow so he goes to a popular you know like public publishing press and it's an instant bestseller um before that of course Watson modified his portrayals of everybody alive all the men got a rewrite uh Rosalind did not Rosalind's family and colleagues come out defending her. So he writes a short epilogue that says, I was a young man that didn't understand the difficulties of women in science, but leaves her story the same and just adds that to the back of the book. Um, doesn't change her character. Uh, and he is the only one of the men in this story that declined speaking in the documentary. Of course. Everybody else showed up to say, I mean, One of them, uh, Crick later said, I'm afraid we always used to adopt, let's say, a patronizing attitude towards her. He's so honest about it, which is like the best you can ask for. Like you fucked up and you're saying like, I messed up. So again, she got recognized in Aaron's speech when he got his Nobel Prize. Um, but she died at 37 years old, 37, 37 with no sense of having been edged out of a race that she didn't know she was in. She was proud of her work on coal and her work on viruses. And I don't think that she was cheated out of a Nobel prize. I think she was cheated out of the rest of her life. And that's what she would be more upset about Mm. to end this off with a super patriarchal note. (laughs) Her death certificate reads, a research scientist, comma, spinster, comma, daughter of Ellis Franklin. Spinster. Yeah. Research scientist, spinster, daughter. Wow. And that is Rosalind's story. Creator of the gas mask, discoverer of the double helix, and discoverer of, like, polio virus. That's insane. Oh, my God. Is incredible. She's incredible. 
30 and all before 40. Yeah. All before 40. That's what am insane. I even doing with my life? I don't know. <laughs> Nothing good. As far wow. as I'm concerned. Yeah. <laughs> myself, not you. You are doing good things. Oh, thanks. <sighs> oh, oh my right. gosh. So I guess we have to compare these women. We do. In a little segment we like to call Just the Two of Us. Okay. So it's a little hard. <laughs> it is. I, I think they were both curious, which I like. Yes. Both very curious and both, um, I think, alarmingly clever can mm-hmm. uh, can go towards both of them. Because I feel like they both just, like, were not afraid to, like, investigate, go into areas unknown, go above the canopy, you know. I am picturing, like, Krista being like, what's that smoke? And, like, her just, like, going towards it. Even yeah. though, like, everything says, like, danger. <laughs> There's a big red X painted on that yeah. tree. And I feel like Rosalind did the same thing. She's like, oh, a virus in a Petri dish? Like, I still want to go and explore it. Even though people are like, maybe it's not so safe. Right. <laughs> or, like, the X-rays. Like, yeah. maybe you should work from home for a little bit. Mm-hmm. No, I, I think that's true. I I think there's this main difference in their personality where Rosalind is painted as cold Mm -hmm. and Krista is painted as like fun and bubbly. But I think it's because you have this difference of a matriarchal society where women are respected Mm -hmm. for their knowledge, for their ability to do magic and grow plants. And this patriarchal society where she is literally shit upon just for being there. Yeah, literally. And like... but that's the thing about it is like she's so undeniably smart and right for the job that like they can't just not let her in. Right. Which I also kind of love that aspect of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like nobody there wants her there, but they also can't tell her to leave because she's so smart and qualified. Um, and I feel like it's interesting that they're both working on like the basis of life. You know, mm. like they say it a million times in Ferngali, they're like trees are life, nature is life. Like this is where we get all of our our power, our our being. And I mm-hmm. feel like everyone says that about DNA. It's like it's literally what like makes us up. And it almost makes me feel like there is like obviously Krista is a magical being that can like see things that other people can't. And I feel like Rosalind is the same way. Like she's so smart it's almost like magical and she takes her time with things too you know and i think that's a big part of nature is like letting nature heal letting it do what it needs to do and i feel like rosalind was kind of the same way she's like okay i'm not gonna rush this it's not guesswork make my model guessing what i think could possibly be it like i'm going to wait until i know for sure and then unfortunately you know a lot of other bullshit kind of gets in the way and forces you to act quickly mm-hmm. you know like i and, don't think krista wanted to be magi that quick <laughs> by the end of the movie but she had to be <laughs> and it's interesting too because when she does like become the magi she is still able to acknowledge that she might mess up and yeah. she needs help they all come together to help her mm-hmm. in the end and i don't think rosalind had that same permission in real life society mm-hmm. and i think that's why she was so practical She was like, if I publish something and mess up, everybody's going to think I'm a joke. Men can publish something and mess up and bounce back like Watson and Crick did. Mm -hmm. She can't do that. And she knows she can't do that. Yeah. Because you all you can't ask for help. Mm -hmm. And if your name will go second, if you publish with a guy, if you know you publish and mess up, nobody will take you seriously for the rest of your career. She's under a different set of rules than Krista's under. Yeah, the stakes are higher. And For I feel sure. like we've seen that with a lot of um, historical women, like the pressure to be perfect is tenfold. Mm-hmm. 
And I think it's, it's just so unfair that you're right. They don't have the liberty of asking that extra question or going to that mentor for help. You seem needy. You seem needy. You seem like you don't actually know what you're doing. And it sucks because we talked about the end of Chris's story, how like one of the big messages is like group work and working together to like figure things out. And like she, Rosalind literally wasn't allowed to do that. She like, if I, I think about what they would have done if they would all come together. Right. Like you said in the very beginning, like what good could that group have done? But instead everybody's working separately and now Rosalind is completely forgotten. Yeah. It's super competitive. Yeah. And it's just, I don't know. It's frustrating. Rivalries that could have done good things. <laughs> and I I like that um, in the book, Zach is kind of um, given the job of going back and telling the world yeah. what happened uh, and how to fix it. Yeah. And that's really important. And I think Watson took that on himself. Yeah. And mm-hmm. Watson was like, I'm going to tell the world what happened. And it's because of his stupid, best selling, incorrect book <laughs> that we like. And he is a smart dude. Right. But he was too boastful. Mm-hmm. He went back and like trashed her. And now everybody knows he stole her shit. Yeah. Everybody knows he put it out there for everybody else. And like all of her other co-workers like wrote papers and shit about her that like no she like yeah. you know she was cold she had to be cold yeah she was mean she had to be mean mm-hmm. like she was a good person like yeah. she was a good scientist and he made her sound like an idiot yeah and like in the book it's like wow she didn't really wear any makeup yeah <laughs> what does that have anything to do what with did what you wear makeup doing? to work <laughs> i'm sorry i don't understand you oh my gosh I feel like there's like kind of like a base feeling of imposter syndrome in this story. Like, I think that Rosalind was a very self-confident person. I think she very much believed in her own work. But then there is a moment where like they publish theirs and she doesn't doubt at all that she's like, oh, yeah, I guess like I'm not the smartest person here. I guess other people can also figure this out, you know? So like it kind of made me feel like it's like that little bit of like you have like it's that humbleness that Watson doesn't have yes you know yeah and I feel like oftentimes it can lead to imposter syndrome like Krista does not believe that she can do the right magic like she's like I don't I don't think I can make Zach the right size even though it's literally just about rhyming <laughs> she like words. makes him a duck one yeah <laughs> exactly <laughs> and I just feel like so many women especially deal with imposter syndrome and oh, yeah. the fact of like you're in a situation. Everyone's telling you you're not good. Rosalind somehow believes still that she is good at it, but then immediately believes that like <laughs> that won't come through. <laughs> but then also immediately believes that like, oh, but I'm like, I'm on an equal level to these guys. So like, it's totally yeah believable that like they also did that. And it's just like that part really bothered me that she believed it so quickly. Mm-hmm. But I guess if we're talking about it the other way and if, like, I don't know, a woman stole a man's work and he was like, I did this first. He'd be like, what a jerk. Yeah. Like, what an idiot. <laughs> doesn't think a woman can also do it. Like, <laughs> Yeah. It's just I, I think that she knew she was working with a slew of intelligent people. And I think the documentary explained it perfectly that she was in a race she didn't know she was in right she was not racing to get this done first she was racing to get it done right so it didn't bother her that somebody figured it out yeah she was like cool yeah you figured it out great yeah good 
Yeah. I'm going to go work somewhere else. She was already on her way out the door anyway. She didn't want to yep. work there. <laughs> she was exactly. like, let me get away from these goddamn people, <laughs> you know, like, which I get, like, yeah. I don't know. Uh, and maybe that's how Zach was feeling. Like, let me get away from these people, this toxic work environment where I'm mm-hmm. like being told to do things I don't want to do anymore. Yeah. Who knows? I think there are both people who rose to the challenge. Yeah, it was like, I think so too. this is difficult. It might not get me, especially in Rosalind's case, a bunch of prestige. And it also doesn't help that, like, you can't win a Nobel Prize posthumously. Mm -hmm. You have to be alive. So because she died so young, she put work in on a lot of these things, but she would never be included on the ticket. She might have been if she was still alive. We don't know. Because they did include Wilkins, who was the second paper. Right. So I don't know. I just, it's really upsetting. Yeah, it is. All right. Well, you ready to toast? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Who would you like to toast? I just want to toast people who love their work because they love it and not for the perks. Uh, They're not in it for the perks. Cheers. I'm going to toast people who do the work for our children's children. Mm. I think that that like little quote at the end really got me, you know, because like, that's right. Multi-generational work. It's hard. To mm-hmm. think that far ahead, but we also literally have to. <laughs> so Let's all be them. like Hawaii and outlaw plastic bags. Yeah. <laughs> all right. What are you enjoying in pop culture this week? So this is really dumb, <laughs> but I made a special trip to CVS before I left for my vacation <laughs> to buy a little Sudoku book mm. because I love Sudoku. And I was like, I'm going to be on a plane and I can listen to an audiobook in my head and do Sudoku. Like wow. numbers and audio doesn't conflate in my brain for some Interesting. reason. So I can sit there and do and listen. So I just felt very occupied on the plane. It was yeah. really nice. Um, oh, I just so got a nice little easy book. So I felt accomplished and I didn't get stressed out. Mm. <laughs> I, I just that. really encourage if you are traveling this summer, you're a big crossword person. Yes. I can't um, do Sudoku. <laughs> and I'm a terrible speller, so I struggle with crosswords okay. on an airplane because I can't look up spelling. Oh. Like, I never look up answers, but sometimes I'll look up the spelling of something when mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm sure this is the right answer, but I don't know whether the E or A comes first. Right. Um, so it's one of those things where I, just make an extra stop. Mm-hmm. Just do that for yourself or buy it in the airport. Yeah. Because it's nice when you're traveling to just have something to occupy your mind because otherwise it's super stressful. We yeah. have lots of plane delays and whatnot and transfers and yeah. I wasn't stressed. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> what about you? Um, I am going to promote a book that I finished uh, a little while ago. The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo by Taylor Jenkins Reid. Perfect. It was so good. Yeah. I like couldn't believe it. I and It's one of those books that I've seen for a while mm-hmm. you know because it's, it's a really very cover very it's good woman in this like striking green dress and it was so delightful mm-hmm. um so yeah i'm gonna recommend that book it's a really <laughs> good book i also recommend that book <laughs> all right well thank you all so much for listening if you wouldn't mind leaving us a little rate a little review on apple podcast that would be great and if you want to hang out with us a little bit more join us on patreon as little as a dollar a month you can help us buy the ingredients for our cocktail recipes had to spend three dollars on figs today um so (laughs) and they weren't even cute figs they weren't even cute figs i can't find fresh figs it's so hard to find gotta get over to h mart i have to like steal them from someone's yard from their fig tree it's true um but anyways thank you all we'll see you next week and never forget that well-behaved women don't ever leave the caps off of markers they don't and they really make history
Goodbye. Goodbye.